founded back about eight years ago. They've scaled now to uh, over 100 folks on their team, 300 customers, enterprise customers that pay about six grand a month. So call it around 20 million bucks in AR today, growing rapidly, 20 million raised. He decided he wasn't the guy to take the company in the CMO role to the next level. So he took a sabbatical two months, went off and wrote this book called Dream Teams, the importance of really embracing competitive stuff inside of these teams, let the best idea win, take the other perspectives uh, view after lunch so you can really get in their shoes. And ultimately, that's what leads to the best ideas. This is the Top Entrepreneurs Podcast, where founders share how they started their companies and got filthy rich or crash and burn. Each episode features revenue numbers, customer counts, and other insider information that creates business news headlines. We went from a couple of hundred thousand dollars to 2.7 million. I had no money when I started the company. It was $160 million, which is the size of many IPOs. We're bootstrapped. We have like 22,000 customers. With over 5 million downloads in a very short amount of time, major outlets like Inc. are calling us the fastest growing business show on iTunes. I'm your host, Nathan Latka, and here's today's episode. Good morning, everyone. My guest today is Shane Snow. He's an award-winning journalist, celebrated entrepreneur, and the best-selling author of Smart Cuts. He's also author of the forthcoming book, Dream Teams, as well as the co-author of The Storytelling Edge. He co-founded the content technology company, Contently, which helps creative people and companies tell great stories together and serves on the board of the Contently Foundation for investigative journalism. Shane, are you ready to take us to the top? I am ready. So you know this about me. Most authors I you know, say no to because they just want to promote a book, and it's frankly very boring, and I just eat them alive. But you, I mean, an exception for because you come from a SaaS background. You come from a software background. So tell us quickly about Contently, and then I'm going to go, why on earth do you decide to write a book? This is like the most difficult thing ever instead of doing Contently. So Contently didn't start as a SaaS platform. It started as a marketplace, kind of a newfangled talent agency to help you know, laid-off journalists from the New York Times connect with clients. Turns out that the most profitable clients, the most interesting clients, uh, when we launched about eight years ago, ended up being brands wanting to do content marketing, which was starting to become this popular thing. And so as we leaned into that, we, by necessity, had to start building project management tools um, to help these brands who are connecting with our marketplace. And then that became the business that turned into this full-blown sort of like Salesforce for content marketing, uh, for for managing everything about your content uh, program. And that's turned into sort of the content operating platform that helps companies, not just with content for marketing, but for HR and a whole bunch of other things. So that's the very quick sort of backstory. But we, we actually had a point where we were going to have the, the software portion be free and be subsidized by the, uh, the marketplace. And mm-hmm. we got in this big argument, and, uh, and the argument was solved by uh, my partners and I deciding to do a test to start selling some features of, uh, of the project management tool uh, for a, a monthly fee of a thousand dollars, and when we sold thirteen in the first month, we said, "Okay, uh, this is the the business," and and here we are. Uh, well, what did what did people get for a thousand bucks a month? Was it like a number of words or number of articles or what? Uh, back then, when we started, it was uh, it was sort of workflow. So you want your PR people and your lawyers to weigh in on your content you're about to publish. Um, now there's a there's a you know packages and tiers, but it's everything from analytics, uh, document analytics. Um, sort of more hardcore workflow integrations and everything you could think of, sales and enablement tools. Um, so it's kind of everything you'd want to do to, uh, to organize content in a big enterprise. Um, so yeah, depending on the size of your enterprise, the number of seats, it, it very much kind of mimics that standard uh, kind of marketing automation type of uh, SaaS product, only it's content rather than 
than uh, email. And, and would you and, say you're still kind of enterprise folk? Like, what's the average customer pay per month? Is it a couple thousand? Uh, six to ten thousand. Oh, so okay, yep. so very much enterprise space, high volume. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. and that'll change at some point, but that's where we are now. Okay, good. And before we move on to the book, can you give me a general sense of scale? So I know you raised capital. How much have you raised? And can you generally share team size, things like that? Yeah. Uh, so we've, uh, the company's about eight years old. We've raised uh, $20 million in total, um, which is about a quarter of any of our competitors, um, which is great for us because we're you know, similar size and, and have an outsized present in, presence in our own content marketing. Um, staff is about 100 people. Um, and, uh, yeah, what else did you ask? How many, customers, how many customers are you working with oh. now? Uh, we have a couple hundred, uh, enterprise customers. We have, uh, one group, like, like I alluded to, that'll change at some point. We have a group of customers that we call high growth, uh, customers. So smaller companies that are, are paying a lower average. And, uh, I forget what the number is, but that's, that's a big growing category for us as well. Okay. And North, North or South of 20 million in ARR. Uh, it's about at 20 million. Really? Oh, look at that, man. I'm on fire this morning. Good guess. Okay. So you're, you're sitting on this rocket ship. You're eight years in, start as a marketplace. You shift the model. You're now serving 300 enterprise customers paying call it six grand a month. Call it, call it 20 million in AR right now. Why take time out of your schedule to write a book? Uh, so a couple of reasons, you know, one is I think of my identity as a journalist. I'm a journalist who ended up starting this company with a couple of partners. I wrote about business and technology and science. And so you know, I, I was covering companies like mine is now. Um, and, uh, and so when we started this company, it's in, you know, the field of media and content, which is my industry. Uh, so it was a natural thing to sort of fall into. But, uh, as we started growing the company, I realized that I had deficits in terms of, uh, you know, how to build an innovative company. And so my first book I wrote, basically I interviewed people and I took a tour of history and psychology to try and understand how breakthroughs happen, how innovation happens, um, and find patterns for how we can do that. Um, so the writing the book was an outgrowth of my journalism work that was an excuse to help our company get better. Um, the second book that I co-authored is about our industry. It's about using storytelling to build relationships and build companies. Um, and this new book, Dream Teams, sort of a similar thing. Um, it, it's sort of this itch that I've had for a long time as my role went from being the guy who did stuff, right? Every founder, you know, ends up, you know, you, you paint the walls and you take out the garbage and you write the code and you do everything. Uh, my role went from that to the guy who picks people to work together and then has to help them work together better. And seeing as the team grew, you know, things slow down as, as organizations get bigger, it's sort of natural. People start having problems with each other and casting the right group of people to work on problems uh, becomes really important and realizing that I can't make every decision myself. I have to empower people with information to make decisions. So I became sort of obsessed with this as a new role that I have that I suck at. So similarly, let me take a, a tour of history. And uh, and the other thing too is part of uh, what I was looking at is just the way the world and our society is sort of changing now um, because of technology communication and you know just politics is getting very strange. Uh, I was concerned with the idea that we need each other to do anything great to make progress. And yet we prevent progress because of each other. And so I kind of wanted to take a meta look at, you know, human collaboration and the dynamics that help a team in business exceed the sum of their parts or slow down or destroy itself and how that same thing plays out psychologically in society and politics, in art, in entertainment, all those sorts of things. So that became the the genesis for the, the book. Um, part of what happened also, I've been doing research, I've been interviewing, uh, people and, uh, and doing my sort of obsessive weekend and night thing. 
Um, but I realized that I was not the right person to take our company from, you know, the 15 million to 100 million. You have, um, Shane, you have co-founders though, right? How many co-founders? I do. I have two co-founders. Yeah. Uh, one's the business guy, one's the tech guy, I was the marketing guy um, and, and content guy. So I realized that I was not the CMO that was going to take our company to the next step function. So I hired a replacement. And, uh, and after a month of getting her up to speed, I wanted people to stop going around me. Um, and, and really for the mantle to fall on her. And, uh, so I took a two month sabbatical to kind of write for 14 hours a day and, and finish this book. So I, I took some time off to step back and do this and then came back and, and kind of became the consultant to her organization rather than the boss. And Got so that, that's how I managed to do the, both these things. Well, coming up, we'll talk about why Chrysler failed while Wu-Tang succeeded and some other surprising factors behind mergers, marriages, and partnerships. We'll also, uh, I'll talk to you. I know you talk about the Wright brothers a lot and what their daily arguments can teach about group problem solving. So Shane, we'll talk about both those things. But real quick, just since Facebook's hot right now in the news, you got Sheryl Sandberg to do your afterward. Tell us how you got her to agree to that and uh, and why she liked the book. Um, so... I helped out Cheryl and Adam Grant with their book launch, Option B, which is the book that was kind of inspired by the, you know, the tragic, untimely death of her husband. Um, and they wrote about uh, resilience and getting through hard things. And, uh, and they reached out to me asking if, because uh, I'm a LinkedIn influencer, if I could write about a time when I had to be resilient to get through something and, and promote their book through that. So I, I wrote probably the most difficult blog post of my life about, uh, and you can find it pretty easily. Um, it's uh, called How I Got Through the Worst Days of My Life. And, uh, and I wrote this post and it went kind of inadvertently viral. A few million people read it. And so then Cheryl emailed me and kind of with this, uh, this email, oh my God, uh, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for helping us with our launch, raising awareness for this important thing. Um, if I can ever do the same for you, let me know. So I said, did you write the afterword for my book about your philosophy on teamwork, collaboration, working together without falling apart. And so she actually pulled Adam in as a co-author of her book. And, uh, and we then pulled in uh, a dozen artists from around the world to illustrate uh, cartoons with some of the salient quotes. So the afterword of the book is, uh, is kind of unique, but it's a collaboration, sort of, a, again, a meta, meta study and, and people working together. Um, but she is one of the more generous executives of huge gnarly companies that I've run into and uh, and I was I was surprised and pleased by that. It doesn't matter whether you're a startup or a huge brand. We all want to grow, but some of us don't have all the tools or the people power to get it done. That's exactly why 37,000 brands are now using Adderall. Can you guys believe that? 37,000. They help brands find more shoppers, make more sales, and grow their online business. Adderall takes care of the nuts and bolts of digital marketing, so brands like TeePublic have more time, less stress, and huge growth. TeePublic sells clothes online if you haven't heard of them. During the holidays, they decide to make a huge investment in digital ads and the guy running their marketing, Adam Lasky, knew it was a make or break moment for him. And the investment paid off big time. TeePublic was able to beat sales targets by 2x, delivering massive revenue and making Adam the hero who could go on and tackle more ambitious goals. And he's not the only one. Adderall customers make $246 billion worth of sales every year. Make sure you partner with folks who are proven to help make you money, like Adderall. To see how brands like TeePublic grow faster with Adderall, visit Adderall.com slash top. That's A-D-R-O-L-L dot com slash top, T-O-P. Let's dive into some of the hard content in the book. So give it, you talk about, I know you talk about the Wright brothers in the book. Tell us more about, again, why their arguments each day can, can serve as an interesting lens for us to look at group problem solving through. 
Yeah, so I love this story of these guys. They're two brothers, and it kind of reminds me of me and, and my brother. I have a brother who's a year and a half younger than me. Couldn't be more different. And we hated each other growing up and also were really good at building forts together and, uh, you know, those things that, that brothers do. Uh, so they recognized that if they were going to invent the things that they wanted to invent, if they were going to solve big problems, they had to have this sort of war of ideas they also recognized that they couldn't let their egos become too attached to any certain way of thinking about a problem. Um, so what happens when we have a very strong opinion on something when we're debating, you know, which is, a, I think, an important part of problem solving and innovation, uh, it, often we reach a point where the conflict either sort of threatens to destroy the relationship or threatens to get too personal where we're no longer you know, talking about ideas. So they had this really clever thing that they did. Um, to kind of, uh, and in the book, I talk about this uh, ideal zone of, uh, of cognitive friction. Um, so what they would do is they would be working on a problem, um, such as, you know, how to propel this flying machine forward. And they'd start these arguments and they'd purposely get really intense and really hot uh, to the point that the neighbors would sort of worry about the yelling they'd hear out the windows. And, uh, and they'd, they'd scream and they'd argue and they'd fight. And then they'd stop for lunch and they'd eat their sandwiches. And then they'd go back to fighting. Um, but what their rule was is whatever side that Wilbur had took in the morning, he had to take the other side in the afternoon and vice versa. So when they got to the point where they were going to kill each other, they had to switch sides. And this uh, forced them to do a couple of things that I think are really important. For, forced them to depersonalize the, uh, the argument. So, you know, you want to win the argument. It's no longer about winning for your sake. It's about winning for the idea's sake. And also it forced them to put themselves in different perspectives, um, which it turns out is how we can can become smarter than, uh, than the smartest person in our group is, uh, is by combining different perspectives and, and heuristics and, and different things in our mental toolkits. So it kind of forced them to take these sides and do this. And uh, my favorite sort of meta lesson from this that, uh, that you probably uh, read in the book is with the propeller argument in particular, um, they actually yeah, just realized- so everyone knows, if you haven't connected the dots, Wright brothers, we're talking, you know, plane guys. Yes, the airplane. <laughs> uh, they're, they're trying to figure out how do you propel this plane forward and the result of these debates and arguments where they had to keep switching sides was they realized they needed two propellers and they had to spin in opposite directions um, in order to keep the plane from spin it, spinning on a sail. And, uh, and that actually is sort of the perfect analogy for kinds of groups that can solve problems in very clever ways is that uh, you need to combine disparate uh, ways of approaching things. And uh, anyway, so uh, they did a whole bunch of other stuff, but I, I love that they had these hacks for forcing themselves to uh, to look at things in ways that that their competitors uh, weren't looking at things. One more example quickly here. So mergers, acquisitions, a lot of my listeners are either buying companies, selling companies, their private equity firms, rolling them up. They know they built a pro forma for an acquisition and, you know, zero percent times does it actually pan out exactly as you model the pro forma. So what did you learn as you studied Chrysler and Wu-Tang in terms of why sometimes mergers, acquisitions and two groups coming together work versus don't? Uh, so the sad math is that most mergers and acquisitions don't achieve what's called synergy, which is they don't add up to more than the value of the two companies beforehand. So most acquisitions just don't result in any net gain. And in fact, a huge number of acquisitions actually result in a loss, um, which really sucks because they're a lot of work. And, uh, you know, obviously and companies merge so that they can combine the different things they have and become better, which, you know, in theory is what we want to do. And, um, and so in the book, I write about uh, two kind of contrasting case studies. One is the worst acquisition of all time, which is Daimler and Chrysler, two massive auto companies that come together. And after a few years, they're worth less than any 
either of them had been worth before. Shane, I have to challenge you there. Why did you not choose Time Warner and AOL? Uh, you know, it's... Was it close? It was close, but it's not as bad. Okay. Um, and, and I think also the, uh, the reason for it was a little more... Uh, it was a little more out in plain sight with Daimler and Chrysler than AOL Time Warner. Um, so what happened with it, and then I contrast this with the Wu-Tang Clan, which is a smaller merger, um, nine uh, kind of alpha males from the projects in Staten Island that came together to become the greatest rap group of all time and change music history. Um, and, uh, and they had a lot of very obvious conflict at first. They came together and they actually brought guns to the recording studio. You know, they came from different gangs. They did not like each other. Um, and they were very suspicious of each other. Um, and, and they went on to become this, uh, this amazing transformative, uh, group and, uh, and Daimler Chrysler had everything on paper for them for this merger. They, they had, you know, sort of complementing skill sets and, uh, but they also, the, the thing that people chalked up their failure to is what most mergers get chalked, most failed mergers get chalked up to, which is cultural conflict. Um, so they did all of this stuff. They're like, where there's the Germans and there's the Americans. And they have different values and different ideas and, you know, different etiquette. So we're going to do these, you know, sensitivity trainings on German dining etiquette and sexual harassment in the American workplace so we can get them to play nice. And they were so timid about making sure that, that you know, they didn't destroy each other um, that actually what happened is what, when you dig deep, what normally kills most mergers and most synergy in mergers is they, uh, they didn't... Uh, they actually, they had what was called organizational silence. They did not actually press together uh, well enough. They didn't, you know, rub their different ideas and, and they didn't have that friction that actually makes for, for new ideas coming out of different people. So they actually stayed away from each other. The two CEOs would go weeks without talking to each other. They tried, they didn't want the Germans to fight with the Americans, so they just kept them separate. And this made everything get sort of demoralized and fall apart. Um, this is a really quick version of kind of the, the lesson learned from this. Yeah. But you look at mergers in, you know, in business history, and this is the thing that actually leads to, to mergers not doing well, is people are scared of conflict, so they don't speak up, they don't argue, they, they don't combine things. And, uh, and mergers that do go really well are the ones where they actually make people move and, and live in different offices, and they host the arguments, and they host the debates, and they moderate these things, and they let people fight, and they let people quit rather than uh, because of fighting, rather than quit because they're getting ignored. And with the Wu-Tang Clan, what happened is the whole point was uh, the RZA, who's sort of the, the captain of the gang, um, he would make the beats and you had to show up to the recording studio and battle one of the other guys. And whoever had the best, uh, uh, the best rhymes for this particular beat would win and you get to go on the record. And so he'd host these battles. He sort of channeled their energy away from, you know, wanting to, you know, be suspicious of each other and kill each other into uh, coming back every week with newer and better material to try and beat each other. And when you look at the history of innovation in music and hip hop generally, but in all sorts of fields, it's uh, it happens when you you don't let competition or fear of you know your difference your differences uh, cause you to go go silent or you know murder each other. It's when you manage to keep it in this ideal place where it's actually elevating the game itself. Um, and so you look at research even in you know, marriages. Uh, the surefire sign that a marriage is going to fail is not arguments. It's not fighting. Uh, it's when you stop talking to each other. Yep, communication. It's so key in both those examples you gave, Shane. Listen, hey, we're running out of time here, but um, well, I want to ask you real quick before we wrap up with the Famous Five, where can people grab the book if they want to get it? 
Uh, ShaneSnow.com has everything of mine, um, or it's just called Dream Teams. Uh, You can find it there. Guys, there you have it. Shane, let's wrap up with the famous five. Number one, besides any of your own, what's your favorite business book? My favorite business book besides any of my own. Um, You know, I always, since it came out, I really liked Adam Grant's Give and Take uh, because it was... Uh, I'm sure it's been mentioned a lot here, but it's a fresh perspective on what it means to get ahead that, uh, you know, the people at the top and the bottom of any field are the most generous and, you know, how can uh, the most generous succeed and and not succeed? And I think there's something really important to that message that uh, we do our best work when we help each other out um, and when we're generous and, uh, and that that's important and sort of being takers and trying to get ahead by stepping on other people is sort of short-sighted. Uh, and then there's also the kind of the other side of it, being generous with only the short term in mind is, uh, going to get you stepped on, but being generous with the big picture in mind, I think is how, uh, how we get ahead ourselves and together. All right. Quick answer, that, quick answer on this one. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying right now? CEO I'm following. Uh, Catherine Minshew, I think, is one of my favorite CEOs. She's CEO of The Muse. Yeah, good one. Number three, is there a favorite online tool you have uh, that you love, that you use a lot for building the company? Uh, Sumo. Yep. Oh, yep. <laughs> Sumo. Number number four, Shane, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Five to six. Okay, that's pretty good. And what's your situation? Married, single, you have kiddos? Uh, I am single. Single. No kiddos? No kids. All right. I actually was married at one point, but I am single again. All right. And how old are you? I'm 33. All right. Last question, Shane. What do you wish your 20-year-old self knew? Uh, I wish my 20... Yeah. I wish my 20-year-old self was more confident. Uh, you know, I, I didn't do a lot of things just because I was scared that I couldn't do it. And it turns out that I can do it. So, so I would go back and tell 20-year-old Shane, stop worrying and just be confident. Guys, there you have it from Shane. We're the co-founders of Contently, founded back about eight years ago. They've scaled now to uh, over 100 folks on their team, 300 customers, enterprise customers that pay about six grand a month. So call it around 20 million bucks in ARR today, growing rapidly, 20 million raised. He decided he wasn't the guy to take the company in the CMO role to the next level. So he took a sabbatical two months, went off and wrote this book called Dream Teams, the importance of really embracing competitive stuff inside of these teams, let the best idea win, take the other perspectives uh, view after lunch so you can really get in their shoes and ultimately that's what leads to the best ideas go grab it dream team shane snow thank you for taking us to the top thank you